Now let's uh, turn for our second reading to the same chapter, Isaiah and chapter 11. And uh, we'll read at verse 10, Isaiah chapter 11, reading at verse 10, and we'll find our text here too, so uh, keep your Bible open here after we've finished the reading. So at verse 10, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner, or an ensign, or even a flag to the people. For the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left, from Assyria and Egypt, from Pethros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamath, and the islands of the sea. He will set up a banner for the nations, and will assemble the outcasts of Israel, and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Also the envy of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall fly down upon the shoulder of the Philistines towards the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall lay their hand on Edom and Moab, and the people of Ammon shall obey them. The Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. With this mighty wind he will shake his fist over the river, that's the Euphrates, and strike it in the seven streams and make men cross over dryshod. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people who will be left from Assyria as it was for Israel in the day that he came up from the land of Egypt. Amen. And again, uh, we pray the blessing of the Lord uh, to follow the reading of his own word. And uh, we're thinking of verse 1, where there shall come forth a rod or a shoot from the stem or stump of Jesse, and uh, particularly in connection tonight with verse 10. Verse 10, and in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner or a standard to the people. There shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner or a standard to the people. Now we saw in the morning with God's help that Isaiah speaks in the earlier part of his prophecy here. He speaks of two stumps, not one, but two. One is the church of God in chapter 6, and the other here in chapter 11 is the royal house of David. And both these institutions, God's church and God's royal house, are reduced to stumps. They were both, at one point, flourishing trees. The church flourished, and the royal house of David flourished, especially in the early days of Solomon. But now they are reduced to stumps. But this royal house 
this stump of a royal house in chapter 11 is now coming to life. And it's coming to life because there is a rod in verse 1 or a shoot coming out from the stump, coming out from underneath the soil and breaking out into the dry ground beside it. And we looked at that shoot in the morning. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw him in his appearing, in his growth, and in his anointing as God's Messiah. And uh, although he was full of the Spirit at every age of his development, there was a special filling upon him when he was anointed at the Jordan River, anointed for his ministry. It was there especially in verse 2 that the Spirit of the Lord rested upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, the sevenfold fullness of spiritual anointing. Now I want to leave uh, the king, as it were, and his glory there. And uh, tonight I want to turn with you to the glory of his kingdom. Now we should expect some kind of overlap there, because um, the glory of the kingdom will obviously reflect the glory of the king. But nonetheless, let's move from the glory of the king to the glory of his kingdom. Now, the kingdom of Christ, uh, as such, begins properly on his ascension into heaven and his session at the right hand of God. In other words, when he sits at God's right hand for his coronation, where he is crowned and he is given the kingly scepter by which he rules, and indeed rules over everything. That's what we sing in Psalm 110. Christ quoted this psalm himself. The Lord did say unto my Lord, that's God the Father, did say to God the Son, sit thou at my right hand until I make thy foes a stool whereon thy feet may stand. The Lord shall out of Zion send the rod of thy great power, and in midst of all thine enemies be thou the governor. That is Christ's session or his sitting at the right hand of God, and he is given the royal scepter by which he rules. Psalm 2, of course, also refers to this, um, where the Lord says, I have him to be my king appointed, and over Zion, my holy hill, I have him, king, anointed. So that's when his kingdom as such begins. And when he stretches out his scepter, uh, through the Holy Spirit, his rule goes out, even amongst his enemies, right into the end of the world. And because he works in the world, as it were, battling and fighting, as the head of his own army, he sets up his own standard upon the earth. In verse 10, we read that in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner or a standard for the people. Now, a standard in a battle uh, was a very important thing. I know that standards still have an important use amongst armies and regiments. The function of a standard or a large banner was to 
proclaim the glory of the kingdom by proclaiming the glory of the king. In other words, it would somehow reflect the king's own glory. And once that standard was raised, it would rally the troops. It would do so spiritually and physically. The troops would gather around the standard. That's where they would receive their instructions. That's where they were directed in the battle. And whenever they saw the standard raised, they would realize that new ground was conquered. It was now in their name or it was in the name of the commander in chief, of the king, of the army. So the standard was a very important thing. It inspired, it lifted people, it encouraged them. Now, as Christ stretches out his scepter from heaven, the standard that he raises is strangely himself. Because verse 10 says that in, the, in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, that's him, who shall stand as a banner or a standard for the people. Now, in what way is Christ himself the standard? Well, I think we're to understand that in a specific way. He becomes the standard when we uh, see him, as it were, or when we hear him in the proclamation of the gospel. Um, our standard, in other words, is Christ and him crucified. When Christ is lifted up, he is lifted up or he lifts himself up. And he lifts himself up as the one who empowers us, who proclaims his own glory, rallies his people and directs them in the battle. Uh, we're given an, an interesting insight into this by Jeremiah, actually, who also speaks of God's branch. Now, let me read just a couple of verses from Jeremiah 23 for you and listen carefully as I read, especially at the end. Jeremiah says this, uh, and the Lord is the speaker. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness, a king shall reign and he shall prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Now this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. Most of you know that um, name from its Hebrew, Jehovah Sidkenu, a, a, a famous hymn of praise was written by, was it by McChain? Uh, Jehovah said, can you, the Lord, O righteousness. Now, the Lord, O righteousness here is the name of the branch. I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. And this is the name by which you will be called the Lord, O righteousness. You'll find that in capital letters, Jeremiah 23, verse 6. In other words, here is our banner. The banner is Christ, but Christ is a finished work. Not simply Christ crucified, but Christ raised and exalted, and sat at the right hand of God. He is our righteousness. And that standard is set up in this world wherever the gospel of Christ is preached. So whenever a preacher goes forth proclaiming the Lord our righteousness, Christ crucified our righteousness, that standard is being set up. On the earth, God claims that ground 
It is a rallying point for his people. It is for people to come to, to come to Christ, our righteousness. Now, I'm, I'm aware that in one sense that this standard, if you like, was unfurled on that hill outside Jerusalem, on that cursed hill of Golgotha. That's where they lifted up the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where the standard, in a sense, was first seen. But the standard is properly unfurled by Christ himself from his heavenly throne, where he commands his people in the power of the Spirit to proclaim himself a savior. He's not really proclaimed a savior on Golgotha. He is being the savior. But when he goes home from his throne, he stretches out the scepter, sends the spirit into the world through his preachers, and they unfurl this standard. Jehovah Sid Kenyon, Christ crucified, Christ our righteousness. So really, you see this banner unfurled for the first time in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, which is, in a sense, I, I remember hearing this expression years ago. I have no idea, actually, uh, who, who said it, but you can consider the day of Pentecost as the birthday of the church in terms of the church's uh, final state on this earth. It's her birthday. She begins life as the church of the risen, exalted Lord on that day of Pentecost. The Spirit is sent into this world. Christ begins his conquest. And uh, that banner is set up. Now, this gospel banner, or Christ crucified, or Christ of righteousness, you'll notice it's a banner that is set up for the nations in verse 12. He will set up a banner or a standard for the nations. In other words, the nations are to look at it and it's to be visible to the nations. It's also set up for the people in verse 10. In that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people. A standard is to be seen. <clears throat> you remember when uh, Moses was um, <clears throat> leading Israel against Amalek. Joshua was fighting the war below, but Moses went up on a hill and he lifted up a rod, a branch. And uh, <clears throat> as long as that branch was held up, the church prevailed. But when the branch was lowered out of sight, the church weakened. Now, we're told what the name of that uh, rod was. We're told it was Jehovah Nisi, the Lord, my banner. So the rod there, the branch, was the banner. Lift up the banner and the church prevails. Lower the banner down and the church retreats. Now here the gospel banner, here the Lord of righteousness or Christ crucified is being lifted up for the nations and lifted up for the people. And that's done every time his name is preached and proclaimed. Now let's look together at Christ establishing his kingdom on this earth by planting his banner everywhere. And the first thing I want to look at in connection with the kingdom is just the extent of Christ's kingdom, the extent of it. And uh, clearly, even from this chapter alone, 
you'll notice that it is a universal kingdom. It is worldwide. Or as the psalm says, uh, to the ends of the earth or from sea to sea. You'll notice here in verse 9, they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The waters covering the sea is, a, is an unusual figure. You would think that the waters were the seas, but the sea here obviously represents the sea floor. And the waters cover the sea floor absolutely. There isn't a fissure or a crevice where the water doesn't enter. And so it is on the earth. The glory of the Lord shall be covering the earth. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, just like the waters cover the sea. So no part of the earth shall be without the knowledge of the Lord. <clears throat> now, I think it's important to understand this. When, when it says that, it doesn't just mean that the gospel will be preached everywhere. It means that it will be believed everywhere. There's, of course, a difference between the two things. There's a difference between the standard simply being raised and Christ crucified being preached on the one hand, and on the other hand, people coming to that standard and embracing it for encouragement and guidance and salvation. And this passage is teaching that the gospel will be preached everywhere and believed everywhere. Because of verse 9, if you take it in its entirety, they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In other words, the kind of knowledge that they have is one that leads to no hurt and no destruction. So it's not a head knowledge. It's a saving knowledge, if you like, or a spiritual knowledge of God that they have in all the earth, in all the earth. And that's why uh, some years later, when Habakkuk is prophesying, um, he uses these same words, except that he adds an additional word. Habakkuk doesn't just say that the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. He adds the word glory. He says that the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that highlights, you see, the personal or experiential knowledge. They don't just see the standard, but they see the glory of the standard. Therefore, they rally to the standard and to the king that the standard represents. It is his glory that is woven onto that standard. You remember when Paul preached the gospel to the Galatians, he said that he placarded the gospel amongst them. That again is like lifting up the standard. So the kingdom of Christ is everywhere. It's universal. And uh, we sang that. His large and great dominion shall from sea to sea extend. It from the river shall reach forth unto earth's utmost end. And that psalm, Psalm 72, we're going to sing the end of it. But how often have we sang the end of it already? The whole earth let his glory fill. Amen, so let it be. We've closed communion seasons with that psalm. 
in Scotland and in Presbyterian churches now for hundreds of years. The reason for it is because the communion brings a special nearness between ourselves and the Lord. And um, it increases our desire for this kingdom, for its manifestation on the earth and its ultimate consummation in the new heaven and in the new earth. And we leave the table of the Lord saying and believing that the whole earth will be filled with his glory. Amen, we say, and so let it be. We sing the same thing in Psalm 2, where the Father says to the Son, and for possession, I to thee will give earth's utmost line. Now, if the kingdom of Christ is indeed universal, if it is worldwide, which it is, then should we not pray that that would be manifested? There's a sense in which we see it, but a sense in which we don't see it yet. But we pray for the day and work for the day when the standard will be set up in every single corner of the earth so that every eye shall see it. Now, although this standard is preached everywhere and Christ is lifted up everywhere, that doesn't necessarily tell us who will embrace it or, if you like, what kind of people embrace the standard. And that leads us secondly to think of the composition of this kingdom. Its extent is everywhere, but its composition, I think we could say, is international, or if you like, it is cosmopolitan. It is drawn from all peoples. Now, this is what the Lord himself said in connection with his crucifixion primarily. I, he said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. So he won't just be lifted up and placarded or made a banner everywhere, but he will actually draw all men to me. Now, when he says there, I, if I be lifted up, there can be no doubt from the context that the, the primary reference is to being lifted up upon the cross on top of a hill. <laughs> that, that is the basis of the standard anyway. I, if, if I be crucified, I will draw all men to me. But the lifting up of Christ doesn't stop at his crucifixion. It's important to understand that. He is lifted up from the earth there, but he is lifted up from the earth entirely in his ascension. He is lifted up into heaven and onto the right hand of God. And he is lifted up every time his glory is proclaimed. The standard is unfurled. And every time this standard is unfurled, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to me. Now, I think it should be obvious to us uh, that by all men here, he doesn't mean every single individual, but he does mean all classes of people without distinction and without partiality. A black, white, rich, poor, bond, free, male, female, old, young, it doesn't matter. I draw all to myself. 
The primary distinction, actually, in this passage here, in Isaiah 11, is the Jew and the Gentile. I mean, to the Jew, that's what the world consisted of. It was themselves and the rest, their nation and the other nations. And you'll notice that both these are drawn to the banner. They're drawn to the gospel standard. Look first at the Jew. Um, in verse 11, it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left. Verse 12, he will set up a banner for the nations, that's general, but then look at this, and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah. Now you'll notice that the first time the gospel standard was raised, it was raised at Pentecost. It was raised through the preaching of Peter, as Peter proclaimed the risen and exalted prince, the risen and exalted son of God, the branch of righteousness. And as he raised it, you'll notice that 3,000 people were converted when the gospel standard was raised. As the, as the standard was raised, as they saw Christ crucified, the Lord, our righteousness, they were cut to the quick. They were cut to the quick and they asked, what shall we do? What shall we do? Of course, Peter told them to repent and to be baptized. Or as he told to the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And how thankful we are that that is the message of the standard still. That, that is the message that the gospel standard proclaims. And we're so thankful for it. At the end of the day, it is Christ our righteousness. He remains our righteousness still. But you'll notice that these 3,000 people who were converted on the day of Pentecost, you'll notice that they were all Jews. Let me just read to you in Acts 2 and verse 5. At Pentecost there, there were Jewish people gathered, not just from the nation itself, but the Jews of the dispersion from other countries, but all Jews. There were dwelling in Jerusalem, that's at this time of Pentecost. Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And of course, they all heard the apostles speak the gospel in their own language. They had the gift of tongues. And uh, they said in verse 8, how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites. Those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews and proselytes. Now, these proselytes were Jews at the proselyte stage, Cretans and Arabs, Arabic Jews. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. Now, Paul, of course, tells us that the gospel was to be preached to the Jew first. And so it was. The standard first unfurled that day of Pentecost in Jerusalem through the apostle Peter, to whom was given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And on that day, he opened it and opened it to the Jewish people. But the tragedy is, you see, 
that the Jewish people at large rejected it. Of course, we all know that. Uh, in fact, it was the Jews of the dispersion that received him on that day. In Jerusalem itself, there was hostility. And the result was that they chose not to come to the standard. Oh, they saw it. And Christ crucified was to them first. He came to his own, but his own received him not. But in verse 10, we're told here, and that's in our text, Isaiah 11 at verse 10, that there, be sh there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. And of course, the Apostle Paul was called to be distinctively the Apostle to the Gentiles. And that's why in his letter to the Romans, he says this, um, Jesus Christ became a servant to the circumcision, that's to the Jewish people for the truth of God, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And, and then he, he quotes from the Old Testament, for this reason, I will confess you among the Gentiles. And again, he quotes again from the Old Testament, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, he quotes this verse from Isaiah, there shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him, the Gentiles shall hope. Now, there's a strange thing there. You say, oh, well, the Jewish embrace of the standard was temporary. The Gentile embrace will last as long as the sun and the moon. But no, that's not the way it is. Paul tells us that it's not over for the Jewish people. He shows us a mystery in Romans 11. And the mystery is that the majority of Israel will return again. And you have that return in the verses in front of us here. Look at verse 11. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left. It's the second time. This isn't a reference to the return from the Jewish, from the Babylonian captivity. This is a future thing. They'll come from Assyria, Egypt, Petros, Cush, Ethiopia, Elam, from Hamath and the islands of the sea to which we belong ourselves. They'll come from all these places. We, we sing of these things very often, the outcasts of Israel. He'll bring them from near and far. And uh, with the Gentiles, they will together be part of the church of God. So it's for Jew and Gentile together. Now, just as I said about the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Pray too that uh, we would be looking for the gathering together of God's people as one. Jews, Muslims, atheists, whoever they be, that they be brought to rally around this standard. Pray for that. The, the kingdom, as we'll see in a minute, has degrees of growth and advancement. So we pray for its full development on this earth, as we'll see in a minute. So the kingdom is universal and it's international. You'll notice, too, that the kingdom is united. 
in the sense that they come to exactly the same standard. And they come to the same standard on the same basis. The middle wall of partition that Paul speaks of to the Ephesians is gone. There is no longer Jew or Gentile. There's no such thing as a Scottish church or a Chinese church or anything like that. We are all one in Christ. And even when the Jews themselves return, you'll notice that they return as one people together. Not a divided, scattered people, but one heart and soul. Throughout their history, they were riven by factions and divisions, with the tribes often in conflict with each other. And Ephraim and Judah sometimes at war with each other. But you'll notice in verse 13 here, when God is regathering the Jewish people a second time, in verse 13, the, Ephra, the envy of Ephraim shall depart. The adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. And listen to this, Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. In fact, together, they will do the work of the gospel as they move to the east and as they move to the west. Now. <clears throat> Just like the universality of the church and just like the international nature of the church, we're to pray that this would be realized more. One, that they might be one, even as he and his father are one. We rest in Scotland on a, on a doctrine and on a government and on a worship that was prayerfully set up from the scriptures alone hundreds of years ago. And we still can't even gather around that. Why? Because we're full of the envy of Ephraim and full of the harassment of Judah. Is that not a scandal? Is it not a scandal every time something unnecessary comes in between the Lord's people. If we can worship together, and if we can be under the same government and on the same doctrine, then why are we apart? Pray, friends, that the Lord's people may be one in spirit and under one government and life in one church. The kingdom is universal, it's international, and it's united. And then you'll notice that it's also righteous and peaceful. Now, I could easily separate these two, a righteous kingdom and a peaceful kingdom. But the two often appear together in the scripture and they appear together here. There's a special relationship between righteousness and peace. We sing in the Psalm, Psalm 85, that righteousness and peace kiss mutually. The first type of Christ, we looked at a type of Christ in the morning in the lampstand, but the very first type of Christ seen by Abraham wasn't uh, Isaac on the altar. It was the messianic figure of Melchizedek, who unusually in the Old Testament was a priest king. Now, <laughs> this is another avenue down which we could easily go, but the branch to come, the Lord Jesus Christ, is also called a priest king. Zechariah 6.13 tells us that the branch is a priest upon his throne. 
priestly king. But anyway, the messianic figure of Melchizedek is the first clear type of Christ that Abraham saw. And Abraham met him, of course, after he had fought the coalition of kings and he was tired and weary and Melchizedek came out to him with bread and wine. But Abimelech, sorry, Abraham ended up giving him tithes and recognizing the glory of this man who was king of the ancient Jerusalem before Jerusalem ever came into the possession of David, before it was ever a part of Israel, before Israel herself was the ancient town of Salem. Melchizedek was there as a priest king and as a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he only has a verse or two in Genesis to his name, but the writer to the Hebrews makes much of him and makes much of his name and his post. Melchizedek is called Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness. And he is king of Salem, Shalom, which is the king of peace. So this Christ-like figure is a king of righteousness and peace. Notice how they're kissing mutually in this person, in this type of Christ. And the righteousness and peace are always in that order. He is, we're told by the writer to the Hebrews, first king of righteousness and then king of peace. Peace can't exist without righteousness. If, if it does, it's a false peace. That's why you need to accept Christ as your righteousness before you get peace. You need to come to the standard, the Lord, our righteousness. And when you come to that standard, you'll get the peace of God, which is the only peace worth having because it's real and it lasts. Any other peace is of no avail whatsoever. And if your weary, restless soul is looking for rest, you must come to the Lord as your righteousness. When you embrace him like that, you'll discover that being justified by faith, you have peace with God. You're righteous. Therefore, you have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So Melchizedek is righteousness and peace. And then right at the end of the prophet prophecy, in Zechariah 9, you have the prophecy of the king coming on a donkey, riding into Jerusalem. Now, of course, we all know how Christ fulfilled that on the Passover. Your king is coming to you just and lowly and speaking peace. Notice how justice and peace again are together there. He will, he will establish justice and therefore there will be peace. And actually, Zechariah there too quotes these verses that he shall have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, I make much of righteousness and peace there because they're the two qualities that are highlighted in Christ's kingdom here in Isaiah 11. And uh, just look at them for a moment. First of all, you've got his righteousness in verses 3 to 5. His delight, that's the, that's the delight of the branch, is in the fear of the Lord. He is in awe of him and loves to please him. And he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. In other words, he's not bribed by a word in his ear. He's not fooled or impressed by any kind of outward display of power. He's not intimidated by anything of that kind. But with righteousness, he shall judge 
the poor. He shall rule over them and protect them and acquit them with his righteousness. And he will decide with equity for the meek of the earth. That's again the just and the people of God. And he'll deal with the wicked. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall slay the wicked. He will give a righteous sentence. He will pronounce that sentence. And righteousness shall be the belt of his loins. And faithfulness shall be the belt of his waist. And he he deals like that in his kingdom because he is filled with the spirit. And then you'll notice that his kingdom is one of peace. In verses 6 to 8, these well-known words where the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard lie down with the goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling all together. A little child shall lead them. What's he doing in that company? The cow will graze with the bear. We don't associate grazing with bears. Their young ones shall lie down together. The lion eating straw. Lion, of course, is a carnivorous animal. He shall eat straw like the ox. And the nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. And the wind child shall put his hand in the viper's den. Because there is no hurt and no destruction in God's mountain. The whole earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now that is a picture of peace undoubtedly. Uh, in each of these pictures you have the uh, the the um, the voracious animal and the victim. And they're lying in harmony and eating in harmony. Now there are two possible views on this. And... I think it's best to say that neither one excludes the other. I mean, some people hold these two views as though you couldn't hold both. But I think you can hold both, and I'll explain why in a second. The first view of these verses is that they are conveying a merely spiritual truth. In other words, that anger is taken out of the world, enmity and war and People who would normally be hostile with each other, with aggression on the one hand and fear on the other, are absolutely reconciled. Uh, and there's no doubt that the gospel does that. Paul was breathing out threatenings and slaughters against the church of God. That church of God included people like James and John, who were themselves sons of thunder. But uh, they came together. And they came together in the gospel. And it's a wonderful thing when the gospel does that, when it takes people who are at enmity with each other, and often very bitter enmity, and makes them lie down together and graze together, or if you like, sit down together as one at the table of the Lord. That's the spiritual view of these verses. The, there's another view that would, uh, would acknowledge the truth of that, but would also say that what we have here is literal. In other words, that the kingdom of Christ, certainly when it reaches a certain stage of its development, will see these things happening literally. The wolf dwelling with the lamb and the lion eating straw like the ox. In other words, that with the advancement of Christ's kingdom, there'll be a gradual removal of the curse from the earth and even from the animal kingdom itself so that the earth returns to be more like it was in Eden, the original paradise of God. 
Now, the view that you take to some extent, or the view that people generally take, depends on the view that they hold of the last things. Some people think that that kind of situation can only ever be true when there is a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Other people see that differently. They say that this will be true when the Lord Jesus returns and that he will stay on the earth for a thousand years presiding over a kingdom of this kind. Now, I think myself, friends, for what it's worth, that the that the truth lies somewhere between these two. The Bible plainly teaches that this earth will be destroyed. The elements melt with a fervent heat and that out of its ashes, the Lord will create a new heaven and a new earth wherein righteousness wells. But the Bible also teaches that there will be a progression of the kingdom of God in this world that will reach such an extent that we'll be enjoying a foretaste of that glory to come for a long period of time. It's almost heaven on earth. No, it's not quite, because for a start, death will still be here. Although, as Isaiah says in chapter 65, a person dying um, in infancy will be unheard of. And a person dying at a hundred years will be considered as dying very young. In other words, the world will reach such a state where there will be long life and a relative absence of conflict, if not complete. And the blessing of the Lord will be to the ends of the earth and the nations acknowledging him. A millennial glory under the power of the gospel while the Lord is still in heaven reigning through his scepter and through the power of the spirit. Now, <clears throat> there are people who doubt that such a thing can happen. They say, well, look, a lion cannot possibly be so changed in its constitution as to eat straw, that his whole body is designed uh, to eat meat. But was it originally is the question. You have an animal like the panda with fearsome teeth, but it eats no meat. Sin came into the animal world and the animals changed in their own constitution because of sin. The, the evil, well, I don't know if you can call it evil, but what you see amongst the animal kingdom, their red and tooth and claw, is because sin entered the world. But with the power of the gospel and with the grace of God, can these things not change? Lifespan is already increasing. If lifespan at one time was nearly a thousand years, just after <clears throat> the fall in the Garden of Eden, is it difficult to envisage it rising to a hundred, hundred and fifty, two hundred years of age? Is it impossible to envisage that a cow and a bear will graze together, that a child will one day play beside the cobra's hole? Why should it be thought impossible? The God who made the world today to reflect the sin that is in it, can he not remake the world again to reflect the righteousness that is in it? He doesn't have to be present on the earth to do that because he is present on the earth in the power of his Holy Spirit and there is nothing that Christ cannot accomplish by the power of his Holy Spirit. 
In other words, in either way, in either case, this image of peace is bringing before us what will happen on this earth now and what will be true of it when there is a new heaven and a new earth. And either way, therefore, you pray for it and you work for it. And I think that's important. And it's important for this reason. If, if you just believe that these things will one day be true, but only when the world is finished and when it's over, well, it'll still encourage you, but you won't be so inclined to work towards it. Because it's not until the world is over. But what if it is? Doesn't that inspire you not just to pray for it, but to work for it? Lord, let there be more righteousness in your kingdom. Lord, let there be more peace in your kingdom. Let there be more universality. Let it be more cosmopolitan. Let it be more united. Yes, this may be an ideal view of what it will be. But it is in a measure here. And let's work towards its growth and increase. It's sometimes very prone to us to think that it's all over with the kingdom of God, to think that its best days are behind it on this earth, to think that the world is winding down. Is that really what prophecy is telling us? We sing a book of Psalms that is full of the future, full of hope and full of optimism for this world prior to its destruction. That's the book we sing. Let that book inspire us and encourage us. There is a victory to come. And uh, so often in, in the history of the church, the church was inspired by a vision of what, is, what was yet to be on the earth. In fact, this vision of the shoot from the stump of Jesse was given to Israel when they were being threatened by the Assyrians. So it's amazing that the comfort that they've got from the Assyrians is something that was going to happen 800 years afterwards. The knowledge that the nation would be rebuilt and the knowledge that the church would, re would be rebuilt. So it belongs to you and to me today. Supposing, supposing these conditions are not going to prevail until a thousand years from now, still does that not encourage you as this vision encouraged Israel then? Yes, we hope for it. Yes, we sing about it. Yes, we pray for it. And yes, we labor for it because these things are yet to be. And uh, let's sing about these things with the prayer that God will uh, bless our meditation on it. Singing in the psalm that we often sing, I refer to it. It's the same one we've been singing, but I refer to it as the one we've been singing at uh, communion seasons for hundreds of years. Psalm 72. 